This is an AMI podcast. Our voices, our stories, our community. Listen to AMI audio podcasts highlighting news, stories, and information relevant to people with disabilities across Canada. Learn more at ami.ca slash audio. Just before sunrise on the morning of Saturday, March 27th, a steel worker was arriving for his shift at the north base of the McKay Bridge in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. The image awaiting him is one he's never forgotten. A few snowflakes swirled as daylight broke in the frigid air. It was minus 10 degrees. There was something red laying at the base of one of the massive concrete abutments on the frozen earth. As he moved closer, he realized it was a person, a dead body, he thought, but Holly Bartlett's heart was still beating. I'm Maggie Rahr, and this is what happened to Holly Bartlett. Holly Bartlett was found unconscious under the McKay Bridge after a night out with her friends. The initial police investigation was wrapped up really quickly. Drunk, blind girl, case closed. The 31-year-old's death in March 2010 was ruled an accident. There's a lot of hours in there that we don't know where she was. There's parts of me that sort of died with my sister. I really would like to know what happened to Holly. Somebody knows. Episode 1, Blindness. My name is Holly Bartlett, and I'm 30 years old, and I live in Halifax, Nova Scotia. This interview was recorded in the spring of 2009, as Holly's life and career were just taking off. Right now I'm working full-time for the government in Nova Scotia, and I am completing part-time my master's in public administration. I am involved with swing dance, and in the fall and spring, I'm involved with horseback riding. Holly was blind. She was born with a condition called microphthalmia, meaning very small eyes. By age 13, she had lost what little vision she had. But despite Holly's blindness, she seemed to see more, or maybe understand more, than most people. The biggest thing that I face, and that I have absolutely no control over, is other people's assumptions about me and other people's feelings and insecurities around that. I really try to be understanding about it. Less than a year after this interview, Holly's family and friends would be receiving tragic news and struggling to understand the circumstances that led up to her death. Questions that eight years later remain unanswered. On the Friday night that would ultimately be Holly's last, she'd been out with friends, first to dinner, then a house party. She'd just completed her master's studies in public administration at Dalhousie University. The final event of the night was at an elegant 100-year-old club on campus to celebrate its graduates. Holly was 31 years old, fiercely independent, and a social butterfly. Friends watched her get into a taxi at the end of the night from the university club. But Holly would never make it home. She was barely alive when she was found below the McKay Bridge that bitterly cold winter morning, some 400 meters from the entrance to her condo building. Investigating officers theorized that Holly, drunk and disoriented, stumbled away from her home, down two steep sections of road, crawled through a hole in the fence, up a very steep abutment under the bridge, and then fell 10 meters to the ground below. 
This narrative is one that people who knew Holly have never been able to accept. They say it doesn't make sense. None of it adds up. Holly died in hospital less than 48 hours after she was found. Within 72 hours, police had ruled her death accidental, and the case was closed. The initial police investigation was wrapped up really quickly. Drunk, blind girl, case closed. That's Peter Parsons, an orientation and mobility specialist who worked with Holly. Peter's father, Brian Parsons, a retired investigator, would go on to look into Holly's death himself. We'll hear from both of them a little later. But first, we want to introduce you to the subject of our story, Holly Bartlett. Holly was always feisty. She was confident, even when she always appeared confident, perhaps even when she wasn't. This is Amanda Jenkins, Holly's younger sister. Well, Holly and I were only two years apart, so we spent a lot of time together, um, especially going up, up, growing up through school. Amanda and Holly shared a room, and they had the kind of relationship you'd expect from young siblings. We fought a lot. We were so different. We were polar opposites. Uh, she was very studious. She was very serious. And I was not studious, and I was not serious. They were kids, and they had little kid conflicts. Oh, we fought about who was going to do the dishes, and her leaving things on the side of the room, or I would be too messy on my side of the room, and and hers, everything was neat and tidy. But Holly and Amanda's relationship wasn't typical, because Holly had to learn how to move through the world differently as her vision declined. And especially where she, she... couldn't see as well as I did. She needed her side to be tidy. And when I would have friends over on her side of the room and we wouldn't leave it tidy, it was always, it was an issue. Amanda also learned about her sister by watching her friends observing Holly. She tells the story of hanging out in the kitchen one night with a friend who was sleeping over. Holly, who was completely blind by this point, strolls into the room, gently feels the ingredients laying on the table with her fingers and said, oh, We're having pizza. Amanda's friend looked on in disbelief. She she had a really wicked sense of humor when when she... She was very witty and dry, and and she was always like that. But um, she loved being around a group of people. And then I think as she got older, and then, you know, she would go to a party, and she realized that this sense of humor was really something. Right. And hey, I can I can make light of, you know, me being different. And it was really endearing. Even after growing up alongside her, Holly could still surprise Amanda. I remember one day I was driving and here's my sister walking down the street with her white cane. I hollered out the window, Holly, it's Amanda. She said, I know it's you. (laughs) I said, where are you going? Yoga. (laughs) Okay. Call me later. But she always had a there was nothing to lose attitude. We were driving down the street one day and she said, Yeah, I last weekend I went skydiving. Okay. One memory sticks out for Amanda. I remember Holly and I got to we were traveling in Newfoundland and we were sharing a, a bedroom. And just before we went to sleep, she said, you know, Amanda, I know that it wasn't that easy growing up with me. You know, and I never said the same to her because it wasn't easy for her growing up with me either. I was very social. Some things I got to do that that she didn't easily do it wasn't easy for her. I was too young to realize what a good sister she was and what a good aunt she was to my kids. I miss her jokes. 
And I just miss having her around. This is Kim, Holly's eldest sister. Holly was very hard on herself. And so she she worked really hard to achieve the things that she did um, on her own. And she didn't ever want a lot of help. And, you know, and by help, I mean, she could have easily had us involved in, in taking her here and there, or she could have stayed in Halifax for um, school when she went to for post-secondary education. Instead of staying in their hometown, Holly enrolled at St. Evex University in Anaganish, a two and a half hour drive away. There were a lot of choices that she could have made that would have been the easier option. But for her, it was always important to prove herself both to the community and the people around her, but also to herself that she could do it, you know? So that's why you saw her go to St. Evex and be the first blind student to graduate with honors and on the Dean's List. Holly was an excellent student, but she never bragged about it. In fact, she didn't even tell her family she was on the Dean's List. My mom and dad had no idea. My, my other sister, Amanda, I don't think she knew either. And so it was a big surprise. Holly let them find out on their own as she walked across the stage at graduation. She never celebrated her victories because she's, she didn't want anybody to make a big deal about stuff that she felt like was just normal, you know. I remember learning about Holly back in 2010. I was working as a journalist in Halifax. I heard the story on the radio news. It was only a few lines. A young woman had been discovered below the bridge, but she hadn't jumped. She was blind. She later died. I remember it clearly because it set alarm bells ringing. Something wasn't adding up. It was only a moment, a moment of wondering what really happened there. But I wouldn't learn the real story for another eight years. At the time of her death, Holly was leading a full, busy life. She was in grad school at Dalhousie University, working full-time for the provincial government's Department of Community Services and volunteering. And there was her social calendar. Holly had tons of friends. She loved dancing and would sometimes close out the Pogue Fado, a bar in the city's downtown. But an unexpected turn was reaping a toll on the family. Holly's father, Wayne Bartlett, had fallen sick. My dad was diagnosed with stage four inoperable lung cancer, and he was 59. So that was tough for all of us. And we all went to all of his appointments together as a family. So it was my mother and myself and Kim and Holly. In order to understand how deeply this impacted the Bartlett family, we want to take a step back and hear a little bit more about their story. Holly's parents, Marion and Wayne Bartlett, were just teenagers when they met in Newfoundland. Do you remember the first time you saw Wayne? Absolutely, I do. I absolutely do. Yeah. I was walking to school. It was a freezing cold February Friday. And I couldn't wait to get to school to find out who that good-looking young man was. I couldn't wait Right? And, and all I could think is, oh my God, I hope he calls me. Oh my God, I hope he calls me. And he did. The next weekend, Wayne and Marion went to a school dance together. And that was sort of like the beginning of the that rest of your life. That was the beginning of the rest of my life. That was the beginning of the rest of my life, yeah. 
Wayne graduated first. He was 19 and Marion was 16. When he finished high school, he left Newfoundland and moved to Halifax to study architecture at a trade school. But he came home. He came, he came back every weekend. A group of them would, sometimes they'd hitchhike and they'd get in the back of a truck and they'd get a, so far and then goodness knows where they'd end up. But they usually got home Friday night and went back Sunday. The year Marion finished high school, she worked all summer to save money to join Wayne oh, in yeah. Nova Scotia. It was the worst summer of my life. I worked waitressing, just a little restaurant on the side of the road, you know, like on the highway, um, tourist, you know, touristy seasonal thing. And uh, yeah, I worked there. I hated it. You just busted your ass to get I that money to get out. I hated it. I just punched my time. I didn't bust my ass. I just, <laughs> I just punched my time. <laughs> Marion arrived over the Labor Day weekend. She walked into a job placement agency and secured an interview that day. They took me in the office and interviewed me. And when I walked out, I had a job. I went to work the next morning and the rest was history. Just as fast as that. $50 a week. Marion worked in a jewelry store and Wayne was building houses. They were in love. So when did you get to move in together? After we got married. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, tell about that. How long were you together before you got married? Uh, three Three, uh, yeah, three years. This might sound more like the 1950s than the mid-70s, but that's just the way it was. How did he propose? I just said, we're going to get married. And I said, yep, that was it. It was nothing big and romantic or nothing, but it, it was right. Within a year, Wayne and Marion were expecting, and their first daughter, Kim, was born. And, you know, we never discussed if, you were, if we were going to have two kids or if we were going to have 22. It wasn't Four years later... Like Holly was Once, born. When Holly was born, it was really, really difficult time. It was a very difficult time. And what sometimes would break a family apart, put us closer, drew us closer together. I had no uh, no problems while, uh, while I was carrying Holly, none at all. And uh, the morning she was born, it was, it was Boxing Day, and... Uh, I kind of had this feeling that something was not quite right in the delivery room after she was born. The way the story goes is that mom actually overheard a couple of nurses talking about it in the hallway. So she wasn't even told, firstly, you know, up front by a doctor or professional. She heard, overheard people talking about it in the hall, which, you know, that kind of, that story kind of um, is what directed me to my career path, to be honest. This, Kim's inspiration to work in healthcare, will come into play later. But at the time, Marion had to absorb the news she had just overheard. You know, your daughter's blind, eh? And, and that was the first, that was the first I, a, indication that I had. And I, I couldn't believe it. I thought she had me mixed up with someone else. Marion learned about Holly's blindness while Wayne was picking up Kim to bring her to meet her new baby sister. When he returned, Marion would have to tell her husband the news. You know, next thing you know, Wayne's back with Kim, and I have to tell him that, you know, Holly is something wrong with Holly's eyes. You know, they think she's blind. And, you know, it was, it was very difficult. It was difficult for me. He was okay. Like, you know, that didn't bother him at all. Like Wayne and Marion weren't the only ones who had to adjust. Okay, so now we have a child whose head circumference is bigger than what it should be. And she can't, you know, her eyes are miniature. And, you know, it was just like, uh, well, they'd never seen anything like that before. 
They'd never, they'd never seen a child with an eye condition like Holly's. Holly's condition, microphthalmia, was genetic, and Marion's doctors advised her not to risk having another child who was blind. Of course, at that point in time, um, you know, all of the experts, you know, said, no, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have any more children. And we hadn't discussed, like I said, if we were going to have two or 22. Once they told us that we shouldn't have any more, uh, you know, that there was a one in four chance that, that we could have another child um, that had uh, eyesight problems. I think that that, like, for us, it was like, okay, let's see if we can prove them wrong. Like, it was, it truly was. It was, it was, I, it's silly. I know it sounds silly, but it was. And then, you know, um, we waited for a while and then we said, yeah, let's, let's, let's see what happens. Marion stayed home to care for the girls and to do the work of running a busy home while Wayne's construction business grew. When he would come home from work, um, he was the happiest man. And he would, when he'd get home from work, I couldn't wait for him to get home from work. And uh, when he'd come in the door when I was, uh, when I was pregnant with Amanda, um, he would all, when he'd open the door, he'd be singing Waylon Jennings, Amanda. Amanda Lighter. And I said to him, if we have a little girl this time, her name's going to be Amanda. And so Amanda was born. These were lean times for the family, but they were joyful times too. And when he came in the door, he always uh, had a kiss for me. And uh, he always wanted to know, talk to the children before he did anything else. The family settled in a residential neighborhood in Dartmouth called Woodlawn. Holly could walk out the door and walk to school independently. This was important to Marion and perhaps laid the groundwork for Holly's impressive independence and mobility later in life. And these early years were happy ones. This is Kim, Holly's older sister. Uh, even then she was feisty. This is a word that comes up a lot when people describe Holly, feisty. Another is fearless. You couldn't really tell her no, or you know, she would she she would do whatever she wanted to do, and that kind of carried on through her life, really. But um, but yeah, that's what I remember: corkscrew curly hair, blonde curly hair, and um, thick glasses. Lots of good memories. Uh, it was all good. Yep. Lots of good memories. After the girls went through school, life marched on. Kim and Amanda would go on to have their own children. Holly was building her career. When Wayne fell ill, it struck the family's very core. Here's Kim. Right around the middle of October in 2009, uh, my dad was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And you know, um, being an oncology nurse, and then of course, it, you know, it's my dad. Um, that was my job to do was to go home and take care of him. Kim, who was working as a registered oncology nurse, had been living in the United States since the year 2000 with her own family. I knew that it would be hard for my mom uh, to navigate that uh, with my dad. So that was, I just felt like that was something I, I was meant to do. The news devastated the family, but it was particularly challenging for Holly. It was hard. I mean, it was hard on everybody, but I have to say, I think it was probably hardest on her, on Holly, uh, because she and my dad always had this, they had an amazing connection. And I know it was hard for her. It was really hard for her. Not unlike Holly's diagnosis at birth, 
Wayne's illness threatened to break the family, but instead it brought them closer together. It was almost like an um, unwritten rule that we just all had to be there. I, I feel like we all came together at that time when Dad was sick. You know, we, we put everything else aside for that time that was going on in each of our lives, and, the, and we, we came together and we, were, we included everybody. Everybody was a part of it. Wayne's cancer was progressing. He was running out of time. Holly never really talked about Dad being sick. Um, she wouldn't talk about it to anybody else. She didn't know how to cope with it. She was very upset about the whole situation, to be honest. She was very upset about it. She was heartbroken. One night, Wayne was hospitalized. Here's Amanda. And so this one particular night that he was having trouble breathing, I picked up my sister, Holly, and we were driving over. And we didn't know. We didn't know if this was it because there was so many false alarms and we didn't know when the end was going to be for my dad. And we talked a lot about that on the drive over to my mom and dad's house. Is this it? That night, the sisters spent hours sleeping on the hospital room floor together and Wayne pulled through. And my dad was released and came home. And um, I talked to my sister earlier on that next week so this would have been a Sunday. So I think I talked to her on Monday or Tuesday. And she said she was going to a party. It was a year-end wrap-up for her public of administration course. And so I didn't think anything of it. She was really looking forward to it. It was at Dalhousie. That's great. The family was already in crisis mode, trying to care for Wayne and for each other. And so it came as a shock when Amanda got the call that Saturday morning. Less than a week later, it was Holly and not her terminally ill father, who was clinging to life in the intensive care unit at the region's biggest hospital. So I got in my car and I drove to the hospital and as I'm driving, I'm thinking, this is because no one's called me back and no one's called to tell me it's okay. It's, it was eerie. So I pulled the car up in front and I knew that it was really a lot worse than what we could have ever imagined because the security guard met us as we walked in the door and he said, are you the Bartlett's? And I said, yes. And I said, but I can't leave my car there. He said, you don't worry about your car, Mrs. Bartlett. Police and paramedics responded around seven o'clock that morning. Holly Bartlett had been found below the McKay Bridge, hypothermic, laying on her back at the base of an enormous concrete abutment in a fenced in, locked area. That first construction worker arriving for his shift warned others not to go in. You can't unsee that, he later said. Holly's body temperature had dropped to 21 degrees. She had been struck in the head, or her head had struck something so badly, she was in critical condition. First responders raced to revive her, cutting open her red pea coat with scissors. She was in surgery within an hour. As doctors fought to save Holly's life, her family was left waiting, wondering what had happened. Like they had her on a heart-lung machine to try to bring her body temperature up. And then in the next voice, in the next, the next sentence that came out of his mouth is the sentence that nobody wants to hear. If you have family away, you should contact them. And I thought, oh my God, like, oh my God, you know, this, this can't be happening. Like it can't be. But I knew, like I knew when we, they took us in to the OR to see her and it was awful. It was awful. And you know, it's really, 
I can still I can still see her there. But the vision that I can't get out of my head was her hands. They were blistered and they were blue. They looked like a piece of steak that you'd taken out of the fridge. It was awful when I touched them. It was awful. One of the nurses said to us as Holly was, you know, we knew she was she was not gonna make it and and she said, you know, and she knew dad, and she knew that dad was very ill as well. And she said, you know, I um, really believe that she is paving the path for your dad. I believe that a lot because they were so connected emotionally and on a completely different level. Like they had a connection like I've never seen before. And so it was kind of bittersweet to know that they were gonna die together. You know, the other part is that that day, my dad and I, we were all there in the hospital and my dad, he wanted to go home so he could get cleaned up. And um, I was volunteered to take him. I don't know that I really wanted to go because I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave, but I did. I went, I took him. And you know, that's when she died was after dad and I left. So I feel like she she did that on purpose. You know, I think she knew, well, first of all, I think she knew I wouldn't leave unless I was told to leave. <laughs> I don't think she wanted to, to die when dad was there. Holly died on March 28th, 2010. In the weeks following Holly's death, answers were scarce if not non-existent. But her family didn't have the benefit of grieving her alone, for Wayne Bartlett was facing his final days. Because once that happened, then my dad just, he just shut down. I mean, he really, he really wasn't interested in fighting anymore. He was done. Only 10 weeks after his middle child died under suspicious circumstances, Wayne Bartlett drew his final breath. He never learned what happened to Holly. At the same time, when all this was going on, we were we were broken, right? We were we really were. We didn't know if we were coming or going, and we were all trying to figure it out and and find, you know, like it was almost like Holly died, and then we sort of were like, okay, pause, like we'll we'll get back to that. Now let's deal with my dad and and watch him die, you know, and then and then okay, now he's gone, and now we're what are we left with? Bartlett was blind. She died after a night out with friends. Peter Parsons was out of town when he heard the news. Peter Parsons was away during when Holly passed away. He was playing sports, actually. And I, Holly had spoken very highly of Peter. Um, and I don't think I had met him before, but I knew exactly who he was because Holly really had a lot of respect for Peter. Peter and Holly met through the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, or CNIB, as it's known today. Holly used a cane to get around. Peter's job was to teach her new routes through the city. And he often calls her one of his smartest clients. So she would tell me where she needed to go and I would help her. And she was always such a, a quick study when it come to learning new routes, um, when it come to, uh, you know, just showing her once and then she would have it. But it ended up being Holly who taught Peter. <laughs> I was kind of learning it as I would go. So I would sometimes do route planning beforehand, but 
Um, yeah, I picked up a lot of tips from her because she was so good at, at getting around Halifax. Like what kind of tips? Um, just like, for example, downtown, the order of the streets, like you're going along Barrington, you have George, Prince, Sackville, GPS. Okay, that's okay. a way to, to remember that. I um, pass that on to my, my students sometime and they think that's neat, uh, my, my younger students. Peter has a condition called Stargardt's disease. He describes it as the opposite of tunnel vision. He has peripheral vision, but there's nothing in between. Peter was out of town attending a goalball tournament, a team sport specifically designed for athletes with vision loss. When he got the call about Holly. Answer my phone in the hotel room and it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't normal to get a call from a coworker while I was away. So immediately I know something was wrong. And she told me Holly passed away. I was just in total shock. I just, you know, I remember asking how and her telling me and it not making any sense. And that was on my mind all week. So when I got back actually to work the following Monday, Shelly and I. Shelly is one of Holly's best friends from high school. They shared a special bond as they were both blind. We'll hear more about Shelly a little later in the series. Shelly and I, along with uh, some of our colleagues from APSI, where I currently work. Um, the school for? Yeah, school for the blind and, and, and some of the orientation and mobility specialists there. Um, and uh, who had worked with Holly when she was in high school and, well, and grown up, right? And it didn't make sense to any of us. So we wanted to go to the scene. Peter, Shelley, and a handful of Holly's other friends gathered and walked the path police had determined she had taken, drunk and disoriented. I should mention here that security footage from above immediately ruled out jumping. Holly was never on the bridge that night. Walking the path Holly was supposed to have taken, Peter became more and more unsettled. When Peter confided in his father his worries about the case, he wasn't just talking to his dad. Brian was perfectly suited to hear and understand his son's concerns because he'd spent his career investigating crimes and specifically homicides during his time with the military police. It's coming around the corner here on the Northridge. So you've turned the corner in your Holly. So, what do you hear? So now the traffic that was perpendicular is now parallel. People with vision loss have a kind of language all of their own. This is what Peter specializes in. Here he is explaining it to his dad. So now the traffic that was perpendicular is now parallel, parallel on the left side. And only that, having the parallel traffic on the left would mean that we're walking away from her driveway. Doesn't make sense, it's a long walk down Northridge. The nearby highway traffic on Holly's left side would have offered her plenty of sound clues about which direction she was heading. A simple technique using traffic for orientation would be to make that traffic on your right to know you're going back. And that's a, a really significant parallel traffic. It's a highway, like, that's still going pretty strong on midnight on a Friday. This is a place that Holly was very familiar with. It would have been like her backyard. She walked it so much. It would have even been better than a backyard because of all the clues that you have with traffic and such. Peter couldn't make sense of it, even if she had been drinking. He just couldn't understand why Holly would ever take such a long walk, why she would crawl through a hole in the fence, why she would climb up an incredibly steep concrete structure alone in the winter wind in the middle of the night. It just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. Once Peter had walked the path for himself, he told his father he didn't believe the police theory. My son Peter was her orientation mobility instructor, and he'd 
called me one day and said that uh, Holly had passed away and she'd, uh, the police had ruled it an accidental death. We talked about it at length and uh, he'd said uh, then that uh, he was troubled by this, that a group of people that he worked with had gone down and looked at the scene and it just didn't fit for Holly from what he knew. It just, uh, it, it wasn't a match. It, it couldn't have happened that way where, you know, was the way they looked at it. Um, I'd heard it on uh, the radio as well, probably the week before, and I heard one day that a blind girl had, uh, you know, had passed away, and there was some confusion around it, and that it, she'd been found under the bridge in in a, a compound area, and the next day I heard it uh, was wrapped up as accidental death, and I was shocked. Peter reached out to police to tell them, given his expertise, that Holly's blindness would not explain the extremely unlikely path she had allegedly taken. He was also concerned about the taxi driver. Had he been questioned? Was he even considered a suspect? But his requests fell flat. The lead investigator Peter spoke with told him the cab driver was a salt-of-the-earth type of guy. This would become one of the most challenging and disturbing parts of our investigation. And Peter wasn't the only one who had suspicions about the taxi driver. This is Amanda, Holly's sister. Yeah, so my dad thought for sure that the cab driver did something to my sister. He was adamant. Marion brought some of these questions to police. I said, Mom, ask the police officer if the cab driver had GPS on their car. Because if they had GPS on their car, at least then we can rule out you know, that she was dropped off at the wrong spot, or the answer was, Mrs. Bartlett, you watch too much CSI. After all of this, Peter, his father Brian, and friends of Holly's began looking into what happened on their own. They called their group Justice for Holly and hit the ground running under Brian's leadership. They canvassed Holly's building, knocking on every door, asking if anyone had seen or heard anything on that last night when she was apparently dropped off right outside her condo building, but somehow never made it home. This, in itself, was a demoralizing task. I remember the police telling me that nobody had come up forward to, to say they seen anything. So we talked to over 100 people. I guess Holly lived in a, in a big building, and we would always end with asking people, did the police talk to you? And the answer was no. The group would meet monthly at CNIB to share their findings and raise questions. Eventually, police agreed to meet with the Bartlett's. We, we met with the police, we met with the RCMP and the HRP to discuss our concerns about the investigation. They, they did give us the time, they sat down with us, they gave us as much time as we needed to. We had some tough questions and what we felt the answer was for a lot of this is Holly was drunk, and and she was. She, she absolutely was. There was nothing wrong with that. She got in a cab and she went home. She did the responsible thing. So you can't villainize that she was at an end-of-the-year party and, and was letting off steam, and, and she liked to have a few drinks at a party. It just, that was it. That was, you know, and there was a lot of, uh, there were certain police officers there that mentioned that, that people do things when they're drunk and and you you'd be shocked. And I agree with that, I'm sure. Here was the problem. 
Amanda and her family weren't denying that Holly had been drinking. They just didn't agree that that explained what happened. Sure. I'm sure there's lots of things that I don't know that can happen, for sure. But I'm just not sure, I don't feel that that's all that happened. But that was basically that meeting. I felt that's just sort of what the answer was. Constantly going back to, she was drinking, you know, it. there's no evidence, we, we canvassed, we asked questions. That was it. In the months Brian spent investigating, he made tremendous progress. He interviewed everyone who was with Holly that night. He kept clear notes with dates, times, and the content of each conversation recorded with precision. He figured out that a bus must have been stopped at the bottom of Holly's driveway when she was allegedly dropped off around midnight. He told police to get the security video from the bus, and they did. This may come as a surprise that police would accept help from a private investigator who didn't work with the force, but they did. Brian would update one of the officers over the phone, as he did when he realized there may be something on the bus footage. A few days later, the police officer called him back to say there was nothing on the tape. No, Brian had said. You have to keep watching. Let the tape play. After following Brian's instructions, the officer made a discovery. The taxi driver, who said he dropped Holly off at her door, didn't leave the neighborhood. On the video footage from the number seven bus that night, the cab driver's car can be seen down the road from Holly's apartment, very near the entry points to the locked abutment where she would be found less than seven hours later. Brian would go on to interview the taxi driver himself and his version of what happened would change dramatically. But despite all of this, the new footage, the taxi driver's changing story, and the incredible suspicion surrounding Holly's final hours, her death was ruled a fatal accident. The case was never considered criminal, and the police file was closed. The Bartlett family did their best to keep the investigation going. Even after the police had closed the file, they pushed for answers. They met with the chief of police. Amanda Jenkins says her family has never been out to get the police, but they have also never been happy with the investigation into her sister's death. Eventually, in 2014, the Halifax Regional Police agreed to have an outside police force review the investigation. It cited many damning flaws. Broadcast this Friday evening. Harsh criticism for the way Halifax police handled the death of a woman who was blind more than four years ago. Quebec police say canvassing in the area Holly Bartlett's body was found in March 2010 was not adequate. Some residents only spoken to four months later. The Quebec police also taking issue with the interview with the taxi driver who dropped Bartlett off the night she died. But regardless of the flawed investigation, the Quebec police did agree with the finding that Holly Bartlett's death was accidental. Holly Bartlett's death was, however heartbreaking, an accident. Amanda, Kim, and Marion had different views on whether to continue pursuing their own investigation. It had already taken a toll. The family had faced so much loss, and they had to move on. Amanda says it was as if they were all in a devastating car accident together, as if they were all in the same vehicle, but each of them saw the crash from a different angle. P. 
Peter and Marion managed to keep in touch over the past eight years. They see each other at an annual awards ceremony established in Holly's name in the autumn. It's hard to see each other, but it brings comfort too. Peter never stopped wondering exactly what happened to Holly on that cold night in March of 2010. Neither has his father, Brian. Wow, eh? So this is going to be uh, neat seeing Marion again for the first time. It's been a long time. How long has it been for you? Oh, it's been six years, well, since we worked on it last. Right. So it's been a, been a while. Yeah. Wow. How is she? You've talked to her? Yeah, she was uh, really interested in, in uh, looking into this again. And yeah, but I uh, haven't met her, saw her in person to talk to her about it. How are you, uh, how are you feeling about it? Uh, you know, it, it's tough going back. Peter and Brian are going to visit Marion to seek her blessing in reopening the search for answers. They know the cost is high. The burden on the family is not insignificant and the chances of finding new information are slim. But they're driven. They're not giving up. Hi, Brian. Hi. Nice oh, to my. See you. Oh, it's good to see you, too. Oh, after all this time. After too. all this time. Hi, Peter. Hi, Marianne. I give you a big old hug, yeah. too. Marion, Kim, and Amanda provide consent for Brian and Peter to pick up the investigation again, to revisit the details, dust off Brian's exhaustive notes, to see if they can figure out how Holly ended up under the bridge on that frigid night in March of 2010. Like, I can't tell you how much I appreciate oh, this. I, I totally understand. We've always all been in the same yeah. boat with this. We yeah. all feel yeah. the same way. Yeah. With any luck. We will get there this time. <sighs> I feel like, fingers yeah. If crossed. not, we will have told the story yet again. Yes, yeah, and right? this time the true side of it will That's really right. come out. That's exactly right. Oh, yeah. Come on in. Yeah, thank right. you. In this series, we will follow their progress, disappointments, and discoveries. The 31-year-old's death in March 2010 was ruled an accident. There's a lot of hours in there that we don't know where she was. There's parts of me that sort of died with my sister. Her death deserved a proper investigation. Yeah, she's behind this. I know she is. In the bottom of my heart, she's, she's the one doing this. Because I, I honestly, um, and not to not to creep you out or make you too woozy, but um, I, I think she's ready. She's ready for us to know what happened. She wasn't ready before this. She didn't want us to know because it was, it would have been too hard for us and it would have been harder for us to carry on with our life. And, uh, but I think she knows now that everybody's okay and that we can, we can handle it. But mark my words, Mark my words, she did not get there because she wanted to be there. I'm telling you, that did not happen because she chose to go there. I promise to you. I, I will, to the, my dying breath, no, she didn't do that. Somebody put her there. It is, it's somebody else's fault. It's not her fault. It's somebody else's fault. On the next episode... That girl could have went anywhere if she had her cane, so you find her cane and that'll tell you everything. Take your time. That's it. Yeah, I found it. I have found Holly Bartlett's cane inside of the fence behind an apartment building, but she was found on the other side of the fence 
And as you can see, this is barbed wire. The police better be doing an investigation on this because this is very, very suspicious to me. I'm Maggie Rahr, and this is what happened to Holly Bartlett. This podcast is produced by Ocean Entertainment. Our executive producer is Johanna Elliott. Our supervising producer is Jennifer Camo. What Happened to Holly Bartlett is edited by Fabian Melanson and written and hosted by me, Maggie Rahr. Podcast sound design and mix by Village Sound. For accessible media, regional content specialist is Ryan Delahanty. And Andrew Morris is development and production executive. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a review and a rating. And don't forget to subscribe.